Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and I'm so excited for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning back in. If you don't already know, this is the podcast where I'm talking about everything from my medical school journey. I am an MS1 that goes to the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and I'm talking about everything from that, what life is like as a medical student, but also lifestyle-related things, how I'm doing, um, how things are going outside of medicine and I'm answering questions. I interview people. I interview physicians, students, and I think all the episodes thus far have been very, very helpful in terms of tips um, through the application process. And today's episode is no different. We are sitting down with a classmate of mine from Baylor. Her name is Andy, and she actually took three total gap years. And so this whole episode is going to be about gap years, as you've probably seen from the title. And she was a case manager for two years. So we're going to kind of figure out and delve into what that meant and how that strengthened her application and made her a better physician probably in the future. So I'm really excited about this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As for me, term five is slowly dwindling down and it is so sad because you know we didn't have afternoon classes we were having a ball you know everyone was kind of going on vacation and having you know doing normal people things having time to like actually live a fulfilling life (laughs) and now it's kind of just dwindling dwindling down but we have exams in a week and I'm so glad I'm able to get this episode up you know a week before finals it makes me really happy that I was able to sit down with Andy and I'm just so happy that this podcast gives me kind of an avenue to sit down with classmates and talk about things that I probably wouldn't even, you know, ask them about on a regular basis. So as always, if you haven't already and you would like to keep up with me in more ways than just this podcast, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Cybear, S-A-I-E, bear, like a polar bear. And yeah, keep up with what I'm doing on there. I post things in my captions that are relatively helpful i did a recent post with anki add-ons um to help with studying and all that so if you find that helpful go ahead and follow me on there and yeah let's get into this episode hey guys so today we have a really special episode i'm sitting here with one of my classmates andy and i will say my class never fails to surprise me and impress me with how cool (laughs) they are um, and how diverse everyone's experiences are so andy's here to help us talk about the pros and cons the ups and downs and give us a little personal rundown of her gap year experiences so i'm so happy to have you on yeah thank you so much this is so cool i'm excited to see what we have to say yeah me too i actually I don't know too much about what exactly you've done during your gap year, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions and hopefully people can learn from, you know, our conversation here. Um, So the question everyone hates, but can you kind of give us a little bit of who you are and Mm -hmm. tell us where you went to undergrad, all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like like you said, my name is Andy. I'm actually from the Bay Area in California, and I came out to Houston in 2011 to go to Rice and then graduated in 2015 and was like... Like, what do I want to do? I knew I was interested in medicine, but I wasn't 100% sure in what way. Um, And so I continued a lot of my research that I'd done as a student at Rice that was mainly around immunology. And I worked as a research technician for a year and then decided that was not my thing. Um, I really love immunology. I love um, biochemistry, but the practice of it, the day-to-day as a career is kind of brutal in some ways. And it's for some, but not for me. So then I did a quick change into 
case management. And it wasn't like a, um, it wasn't a formal job at the time. It was more of a volunteer role. And it met a need for a nonprofit that was doing um, like kind of like care coordination services for patients who go to the emergency room a lot. And um, I started volunteering there and then I worked full time and ended up working there for two years in total. Uh, so I took three years off between Rice and Baylor, and then okay. I, you know, and now I'm here. So awesome. it's been a crazy but really, really cool and rewarding journey. Yeah, and we're going to dive into a lot more about what it means to be a case manager, yeah. what exactly that <laughs> job entails, because I'm so curious. Oh, yeah. Um, but in the meantime, so you grew up in California? I did. Through and through? Okay, mm-hmm. great, great, awesome. Uh, what is your favorite part about California? Yeah. What do you miss about it? I think the thing I miss most, especially in comparison to Houston, is... The ability to be outside at any time of the year. Yeah. Um, And, like, not only is that a nice option to have when you're just living there, but it's reflected in how everything is constructed and how, like, communities gather. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Houston, you kind of have to be in an air-conditioned place or have the option of that, and it changes how, like, people gather. And so that's something that I miss is just being able to be outside and be active and feel more, like, a part of the landscape in that way yeah yeah that's such a deep reason <laughs> in California. I, lo- yeah. I love that yeah that's so true it's like always 75 and sunny and yeah beautiful. it's just like it's unreal it's crazy okay so we're gonna get into some hot seat questions I thought sure. this would be a good idea because we don't really know Andy too well in the yeah. podcast we want to get to know her <laughs> we want to you know learn more about her so these are ranging from medicine to like completely random yeah so this is why I asked you if you knew about Twilight before we started. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. You just answer them truthfully. Okay. Um, you don't have to, you know, explain too much or anything. Just give us your honest answers. So first question, Team Edward or Team Jacob? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I think when I read the books, uh, which was in high school, I remember I was at like a I was really into rowing in high school and I would like bring them to races and like read them between races. Um Probably at the time, Team Jacob. I think this is going to be, again, so oddly deep, but in being a case manager and in working with a lot of people who have, um, like, various different relationships with people, um, the thing that I now see in the Twilight series is that, like, a lot of teenagers look at that and they kind of idolize those relationships. I don't know if I feel the same way about that as I did then, Um, but... To answer your question, I guess Team Jacob. Okay, cool. I think I was Team Jacob too, especially reading the books. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think we modeled our relationships or what we wanted out of relationships from like teeny bopper novels right. back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of ruins things when you know more mm-hmm. about it. You're like, hmm, why did I enjoy that? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. But at the time, I totally enjoyed reading them. Yeah. And that was how it landed. Yeah. Okay, second question. If you could live in any country out of the United States, where would you live? Yeah. Um, it's so funny. When I think about where I want to live, it's more about, like, who's there that I know. Um, so I think Australia would be great. I had best friends growing up um, who were Australian. They were twins, um, and I'm also a twin, and so the four of us would hang out all the time. We grew up in the same neighborhood. So um, now they're back in Australia, so I'd love to live there and see them um and then i think yeah probably australia or um the netherlands because i have family in amsterdam 
Cool. Um, so those are probably my two top two. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. Question three, what is your least favorite part about medical school? Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. I was thinking about this this past week. Um, and I think the hardest part is trying to maintain a sense of who you are and what you care about outside of medicine. Because medicine is really exciting, but it can be really all-consuming. Um, and I think, yeah, on Tuesday I went to an Astros game and I just, like, I love watching baseball and I've never been to an Astros game in the eight years I've been here. And just walking into Minute Maid was like, this is such a happy place for me and I wish I could be here more often. And I was kind of joking around with my boyfriend like, oh, med school gets in the way of like watching baseball or like doing these things that like when you don't have a career where you're so on all the time, you have more flexibility. Yeah. So. Yeah, That's the hardest part. Completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. My goal is to go to a Rockets game at some point. Yeah, um, totally. I love watching basketball. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Question four. What is your favorite season and why? Mm. Oh. Um. Let's see. I think my favorite season is the spring, and so much of that was tied into when I grew up in California. In high school, the spring was when I was when I was doing a lot of rowing. That was our racing season, and so I was always outside. I was on the water. Um, and there was always something going on and you're kind of preparing for all these different events and it was always so much fun to have that energy and to just be with your closest friends all the time. So I kind of associate that with spring as racing season. Got it. I love that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Question five. If you weren't going to become a doctor, what would you do? Yeah, totally. I actually thought about this a lot in like a, uh, very pragmatic way, I guess, in coming to Baylor because... Uh, when I was at Rice, I applied as a junior and didn't get in at all, like belly flopped, like did an interview, got like maybe a few secondaries, didn't know anything about the process or why I wanted to go into medicine. And it was like hugely humbling experience, but also really um, important to have. So I spent a lot of time trying to think about, did I want to go into kind of like immunology research? Did I want to go and get um, a master's and PhD in public health? Or did I want to go down there out of doing physical therapy. Um, and ultimately, I those are all things that I, I think not necessarily research as a career, but I would absolutely love to do kind of a public health policy career. Um, but I didn't want to give up the relationship kind of aspect that comes with medicine. Yeah. Um, and you're very, and not always, but you have the opportunity to be very connected to the people you serve, which is not necessarily true in a policy position. Yeah. So completely. Yeah. I love that. So it's always been about something surrounding healthcare. Yeah. For you. Okay. Absolutely. That's good to know. Okay. Last question. What is your favorite quote or mantra? Hmm. If you have one. Ooh, I don't know. Um, or advice. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think I'll go with advice. I think one thing that I took away from being a case manager, um, and stepping into a role where I had no prior experience, it was mainly like I was interested and in wanting to help in whatever way that that organization needed, was that um, like everyone always has value they can add to wherever they are. And I think as med students, we always feel very small, like, oh my God, there's so many people who know way more than we do. They have so much more clinical experience. And how could I ever offer anything to a team? And we always joke about that, like, oh, I'm here kind of like, because I they make space for me, but like, I'm not needed. Um, but I think through that role, I found that, um, like never doubt your own 
value, I guess. And if you feel like you aren't adding value and you're concerned about like your role, you can always find ways to meet needs that others can't. And I think as med students, we have the time and also the kind of lack of bias and the like naive, I guess, where we haven't gathered all the same biases that people have as they become attendings where we can walk into a room and notice something that no one else would and speak up about it because we don't know better, kind of. Yeah. So I guess never doubt your your value and your instinct. And you may not want to act on it immediately or kind of react in that moment, but to think about what you can do in that moment and how powerful that could be. Yeah. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Okay, that's a, a good little segue into what this episode is going to be about. Yeah. Um, basically, finding yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, trusting your instincts, which you probably did, you know, by deciding to take a gap year. Yeah. Um, so we're going to hear about exactly what your experience was. So yeah. um, let me ask, what made you want to take a gap year? You kind of addressed it. Um, yeah. Let me speak more on that. I think um, when I was graduating from Rice, it was not so much a – it wasn't necessarily a choice – Um, right because I applied to school didn't get in and was like okay now I need to find a job but also do I want it to be a job that's in service of reapplying and what does that look like um so I think um yeah like like I said it wasn't necessarily a choice but in retrospect uh it was super helpful and once that was kind of in the cards where I knew I wasn't going to go to school right away then I made choices in terms of how I wanted to spend my time Um, and like I said, really try and figure out what made me happy and like what work environments I thought were really, um, positive for me to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, and you kind of learn very quickly that everyone has their own style or their own goals in a workplace and you have to kind of stay, stay true to yourself as much as you can and advocate for a space that's best for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So going into it, did you when you were going into your research technician job, um, yeah. did you know that, you know, one day you would be reapplying or? Um, I think I didn't know for sure because I was also considering doing a master's of public health. But I think at the time I had so much insecurity around, was I a strong enough applicant for anything? Which in retrospect is so silly because you could always have the opportunity to strengthen anything. And yeah. I was always really concerned that my ideas or my path that I was interested in was not good enough. I don't know, like, to whom it would be good or not good, but yeah. I was always thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and I think just through experience of understanding, like, oh, I liked this interaction or I didn't like this interaction, um, kind of getting a sense of what workplace would make me happy and what degrees I would need in order to be there. Yeah. And what kind of people I liked working with and what environments do they typically, like, come from? Were they in social work, public health, yeah. medicine, that kind of thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess moving from your from your first job, what made you want to take, you know, more years off to kind yeah. of find yourself, find that? I think I, in working as a research technician, I'd already done two years of undergrad work. And then this was different in that it was a full-time employee role. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I really didn't want to work with cells or models. I really wanted to work with people. Yeah, and <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, it's not that, that uh, research science is bad. I think it's really incredible. And when it goes right, it's 
really awe-inspiring. Um, the kind of, every workplace has politics, but the kind of politics specific to that environment, I think, were ones that I was just like, nope, not for me. Like, yeah. y'all can handle that. <laughs> I'm yeah. peacing out. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I developed really incredible uh, mentor um, relationships. And part of the reason that I am at Baylor, or not even part, like almost 100%, is from the people that I met in that role who decided to, who just really were invested in supporting students and not only helped me in that role specifically, but in getting to know other faculty at Baylor and um, kind of helping me explore things that I cared about and validating things that I cared about yeah. and being like, yeah, go pursue that. Like, it doesn't matter if no one else cares about it or likes it. Like, if you are enjoying that, go figure it out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so can you talk more about being a case manager? Let's just get yeah, into exactly yeah. what you do and all of that. <laughs> yeah, so case management, I think in its essence, is the person who is trying to help fill in the gaps in healthcare. And it can either be, what I've seen it be is either on kind of like a clinical side, like being a nurse case manager who's focused really heavily on the coordination of medical care and services, or it can be more on the social side. So you have social workers who are trying to make sure um, patients are accessing all the services they need kind of outside of just purely clinical things. Mm-hmm. Um, and my role was a little bit of both. I obviously didn't have the same clinical knowledge as a RN, and I didn't have the same um, kind of like therapeutic relationship building um skills that a social worker may have, but it, I had a blend of both that I kind of learned on the job because we had RNs and um, social workers and actually EMTs from the Houston Fire Department and MDs. Like, so many people were on that team that I got the opportunity to kind of absorb a little bit from everyone. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what case management is, in my opinion. And the role that I had over time really developed, but it, in my mind I had kind of three tiers So I worked really closely with patients who go to the emergency room a lot. And a lot of providers, I think, are really frustrated by these patients because they have really complex medical problems. They they usually are in really under-resourced homes or communities. And it just feels like no matter what you do, you aren't really making a difference in this person's life. And no one's really happy. Like, everyone walks away really dissatisfied. Um, So that was the population I worked with. And my primary role in for all of my clients was to try and meet immediate needs. So whether that was getting into the doctor, getting transportation, housing, um, insurance, uh, all sorts of supportive services, that was kind of the basic level. It was just making sure that happens. Um, And then the next level was more of like a therapeutic alliance um, where the idea, especially for patients with chronic illnesses who go to the, um, who interface with the healthcare system a lot, not only do these patients usually have a lot of trauma just in their life and a lot of really hard experiences where they face a lot of adversity, just interfacing with the healthcare system in and of itself can be really traumatic. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been a very uh, crazy experience just in the last year because when I stopped being a case manager, I actually started needing to get like orthopedic surgery and balancing like being a patient and a med student and then someone had this like wacky case management experience. Um, So the the next part of my role is something that I find really interesting and really want to continue as a provider and it's really around kind of narrative therapy and narrative medicine where 
the idea is that we all have events in our lives that happen, whether they're good or bad, you kind of, like some things are objectively bad, like you probably don't want to like lose health insurance or lose your health or house, yeah. um, but we have the power to kind of shape how we view those events and how we connect them and how we build a story, yeah. and that story building can be really therapeutic when you can help someone recreate their narrative, um, still centered around the same events. So helping people feel empowered versus really kind of dejected by all the things that are happening to them. Yeah. So that was the kind of second level. And then the third, which not all clients would get to, um, just depending on time and what where they were, was kind of to help them become health ambassadors for their own communities and their own families. Yeah. So a lot of times, if you have someone who's going to the emergency room, you know, 10 times a year, like something's not working, yeah. often... Um, the patients I worked with were in really impoverished settings. There was a lot of violence, a lot of things that they couldn't control and I couldn't control. But um, one thing that I saw was really powerful is when they felt like they kind of had their life settled to whatever degree, then it was really helpful for them to go out and feel like they could go educate other people and support others. And instead of having this personal narrative of, like, I'm the needy, I am the person who needs help, I'm the person who has, like, this case manager, they could go out and, and help people and kind of take on that own role and become caregivers instead of the person who's being taken care of. Yeah. So that was kind of, like, the three three things of, like, yeah. meeting the need, uh, narrative therapy, and then kind of, like, health ambassador. Yeah. So it, like, gives people a purpose mm -hmm. in their communities, and it's, it's more longitudinal yeah. care than just you providing a service right leaving yeah because it's meant to be really sustainable like what we didn't want to happen was if I walked away then it would all kind of fall down we really wanted people to feel like they knew what was going on in, in their own life and in their health and in the healthcare system to the point where they could kind of walk away from the situation and just be able to maintain what they had already created yeah, yeah. so can you um kind of like walk us through the process of a patient comes in, mm -hmm. and then at what point do you get, you know, called on to be a part of this patient's care? Yeah. So it's a good question because it evolved as I was working at this, uh, with this uh, organization. So it was a nonprofit, and initially it was really heavily staffed by um, EMTs, mm -hmm. and that changed over time, and it became a lot more social work oriented just because of changes in funding more than yeah. anything. So, but pretty much at all times, I was either involved in the very first encounter we had, or at least the second. And what that would look like is we would get a list of potential patients who would benefit from this case management service, and we would actually go to their address. And we try and call them in advance, but like, you don't ever give the hospital or your insurance company, no one ever has your real contact info unless you're like on it. Because yeah. if you move, then, you know, whatever. So it's always hard to connect with people. But what we do is um, either schedule a time or just go out in the community and see them and say, hey, yeah. like, you know, we're from XYZ organization. Um, we'd like to talk to you about kind of this program we have. We'd really love for you to be a part of it. Here's what we're about. Um, and I was always amazed how open people were and people just open their doors. Like, I never open my door when a stranger yeah. knocks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's... And so um, they would pretty much always invite us in. And the very first thing that we would do besides introducing who we were while we were there was try and ask that person, like, what, what's your story? Yeah. Like, what, 
like what are you about like what's going on what's important to you because that's something that doesn't really have a space in the current healthcare system um i think a lot of people a lot of providers wish that they could spend more time just talking to their patients and i know that i don't know where i was reading it might be through the va Uh, i think it might be through the va where they're trying to just have someone come in and say tell me your story yeah. Like your experiences, whether or not they're related to their experience of being in the military or not. But um, again, kind of going back to this idea of therapeutic um, story building where people can feel heard and listened and listened yeah. to. Um, so that was really the first thing we did was try and establish rapport by just saying, like, what, what's going on? Uh, and then subsequent encounters were usually around doing a biopsychosocial assessment. So understanding like what were their medical needs, what did they have any kind of mental health or behavioral health needs, and what about kind of social services. So yeah. we would do really in-depth assessment and map out their goals and what they cared about. Um, and it was always really specific to each person. Uh, and it would just kind of evolve from there. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was it was really incredible. It could also at times be very stressful. Yeah. Um, just because you bear witness to a lot of adversity that you can't control. Yeah. And I think that is how I ended up getting really involved and passionate about health policy was seeing that on the kind of micro level yeah. and seeing how these major policies would influence people's lives in the most absurd ways. Like no one would ever I think if someone was were sitting down writing a law and they saw how it immediately impacted people, they would think twice about signing it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so just seeing that side, I think in order to cope with kind of bearing witness to that, that's I just immediately try to get involved in policy um, activities in Houston, whether that was at Texas Children's or Doctors for Change, but things that... I could somehow, like, take all these, like, stories and this craziness and put it somewhere so it felt yeah. like their narratives meant something. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like it's our role as medical students because we, like you said, mm-hmm. we have so much time to go out into the community mm-hmm. to see people's faces mm-hmm. and then be the ones that are either lobbying or providing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I guess, like, pamphlets and stuff for legislation that's being written. Like, people will listen to us because we have those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Med students are in this really incredible position where they have the time and the energy, I guess, like we're not fatigued yet (laughs) to go out and do this kind of work because there's a huge need. And I think everyone in healthcare is really excited about trying to incorporate it in greater ways, but is kind of unsure how to do that where you're managing like time and cost and like you know, just people need time to be people and go home and be with their yeah. families. And so I also yeah. just love the idea of um, like a kind of a third party, like case manager coming mm-hmm. in to get the story to elicit the things that might not have a direct relation to someone's mm-hmm. health outcomes. Because mm-hmm. um, I think I think the push is that physicians should spend more time doing right. that in the, you know, in their rooms. Mm-hmm. But that's not always plausible, possible. Yeah. So. No, it's so, so hard. I think. And something that I, I I miss about being case manager is you're kind of this like beautiful unicorn in the room where everyone's happy that you're there, right? Yeah. Like the the doctor is like, oh sweet, like we're gonna someone's gonna figure something out and it's not yeah. gonna be as stressful for me. Um, and for the patient, they are excited about being heard and they, everyone feels like there's more hope. 
Um, and sometimes those expectations can be like really unrealistic and you have to manage them. Yeah. But at the end of the day, everyone is just happy you're there. And I think you're right. When it's a third party, the kinds of communication you can have is really different. And even in being like having my own experiences being a patient, I'm I just feel so surprised sometimes by what I decide to disclose or not disclose to my providers. Because if I had been yeah. a case manager, I'd be like, oh, yeah, tell them that. Yeah. But me as the patient, I'll be like, oh, well, what if this happens? Or like, what if they think this? Like, oh, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. And so it's really, it's a very unique relationship to be in that case management role. Yeah. So um, just a question that relates to what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. So you're walking in, you're being led into people's homes yeah. to initially elicit their stories. Do you ever get any pushback of people that are like, I don't need this help? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you here? <laughs> yeah, totally. I think there are certainly patients who say that. And I'd like, I always, I mean, that's so fair. I completely respect that because one of the things I learned a lot in that role is you have to meet people where they are and where they're at. Yeah. And um, even if some hospital system says, oh, this person's so expensive. Like, what's going on? Go see them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to engage in that program. And it may not even be the right answer for them. Like, we kind of presume, like, oh, like, we can fix your problem. Like, and that's not necessarily true. So for the most part, people were really excited. And even if they said no to the program, I think they still appreciated someone coming in and saying, hey, like, we just want to talk to you and see what's going on and how we can help um, and just having someone listen to them. Yeah. Um, and we would never, one of our biggest things was like, you never pressure someone into saying yes or committing to the program and they could always drop out at any time. And there were plenty of clients who I would work with. There was one that I, we only would work with them for six months, but some we kind of had extenuating circumstances that would put them in the program for longer. Yeah. Um, and I was working with someone for at least a year And at that point, there was so much going on in her life, both medically and at home. um, And we kind of mutually decided to take a step back. And I would kind of, like, reach out. Like, every week or so, we would touch base. But, like, I wasn't going to go home and visit her because we would usually do weekly home visits. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of decided, like, yeah, let's just take a step back. You're still in the program if you want to be, but I think it would benefit everyone. And it really did, because when she felt ready to reengage, then it was on her own terms and less about feeling the need to meet other people's expectations. Like, oh, this is what it means to be a good patient. And I want to keep Andy happy because, like, she's part of my life now. You know what I mean? So um, there's always a balance to strike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what made you take that second year? What made you keep working there? Mm -hmm. Um, Just if you can talk about that. Yeah. I think, um, so my role, the organization is really young, actually. I think it's been in Houston for five years, but I could be totally wrong. Um, The reason I took another year is that I felt like my role was going to evolve in a way that was something that I really wanted to be a part of. Um, So I think I took more of a role in the case management than I had in the past. I was working really closely with um, different Uh, people on our team especially our social workers and I just love working with social workers like they like it it's amazing like when I go into a hospital and go into like our preceptor sessions or whatever I'm more interested in seeing like what they're up to and like the conversations they're having um just it's such a different um way of approaching relationships and patients and problem solving that I think is really powerful 
And I knew in that second year I was going to be able to kind of gain more from those mentors and then also take roles in um, program development and quality improvement. So how could we take our intervention and make it better or stratify it for different types of uh, patients? Because at the time we were just, the only criteria was, okay, you have to have chronic illnesses and you have to meet the certain like utilization criteria where you're in and out of the hospital a certain number of times per year. And that's such an encompassing eligibility criteria that uh, we often found that we were unprepared for certain diagnoses or certain conditions where if we had stratified and decided how we were going to allocate resources or even become more educated in that specific area, that that would be helpful. So I wanted to be involved in that aspect. Yeah. So your, your job wasn't done there, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So to what extent do you feel like you could talk about this experience during interviews mm. or like how curious were they that they kind of probed about it? Mm-hmm. I think um, I was really excited to share that experience. I think what I found when I was interviewing was that a lot of MDs um, feel like they are Like, I guess the way that healthcare is currently delivered can be really limiting. Mm -hmm. You're limited by time. You're limited by resources. Um, You can only spend, like, a few minutes with the patient. So you have to decide, like, okay, what are the diagnoses we're going to talk about? I know you have maybe, like, three, four, five, ten. Like, we can't hit them all, but, like, what can we do? And it always feels like you're not doing enough. And you're always being monitored by all these different metrics. And even though that's in service of like patient safety or, you know, good encounters, it's still um, almost like takes the joy out of practice. Yeah. And it, and I think to see someone kind of be able to be in a clinical setting in a role that wasn't as bound and then also take those experiences and translate them into health policy and to see someone so young be heard, I think was really unique. And I think yeah. people wanted to know about that. Um, and I really, I credit a lot of my mentors and supervisors in, in like letting me do that because to me, it's crazy that someone would trust me in to like writing a health policy brief about, you know, postpartum depression and then it ends up being used in a bill. And then we end up being able to like enact a bill that influences kind of like how, um, Medicaid or different insurance agencies can cover different screening. Like, it's crazy that you can escalate it that far and then be like, okay, now I'm going to go to med school. Like, you'd think that's something that happens later. Um, And I think, so I was very excited to share that because I found it really thrilling. And I think people really wanted to know more about it to see how they could kind of do something similar in their own careers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the listeners are probably you know, wanting that opportunity now. And it's something that I hadn't really heard too much about. Yeah. Um, so how does one go about getting involved in it? Um, yeah. Did you just sort of reach out to this organization or mm-hmm. what, what steps did you take? Do you mean health policy or case management? Case management. Yeah. But also then, you know, yeah. diving into health policy before you have the totally. school education. I think, um, yeah, it, honestly, it really is about just emailing people yeah. and um, knowing what kind of what you want to get out of that encounter and what you're willing to kind of sacrifice to get there. So when I was in research lab, I I knew I wanted to be involved, but I didn't really know what I could offer. And so it was a volunteer basis kind of for me to assess what the organization was up to and what needs they thought I could meet. Yeah. Um, 
the good and bad thing about nonprofits is that with limited funding, they're always open to volunteering for the most part. And so um, it was more of a like, okay, just kind of watch what we do with our clients and see kind of where you think you could fit in. And yeah. it was sort of like an audition in that sense where I'm, um, I made an effort to see what I could do. Yeah. Um, and then with health policy, that again is just emailing people. And I think in health policy, what everyone is looking for in academic settings is that personal narrative. Um, because I think, um, you know, academic scholars can always pull up data and run analyses and have these reports and like, that's great that like one in five, whatever experiences this, but that doesn't compel policymakers or other people to listen until you can bring it home. And I think I, I would, I'd honestly, I like emailed people and was like, Hey, I saw you do this like it really resonates with my experiences as a case manager in this way could we just chat and I still end up doing that now and I'm trying as a med student and I try and focus on like okay primary role is to like do school pass classes um but I still find myself even in lectures or seminar series being like oh that's so cool I really want to sit down with that person and like it doesn't have to be something formal like we're gonna write a paper or do something but just like picking their brain and seeing kind of where they got to where they are and what they care about and what they see are the issues facing either healthcare generally or in their kind of like niche area. Yeah, that reminds me. Um, so I had a meeting with Dr. Hotez just because mm-hmm. I enjoy him and I like yes. love him as a professor. <laughs> and so I just like sat down with him and I was like, you know, I find infectious disease really interesting. Like, where do I go from here? Like, mm-hmm. what even is there to do in this field? And he was like, you need to stop thinking about what kind of medical student you want to be, what kind of resident you want to be, Mm -hmm. and you need to start thinking about the kinds of patients you want to treat. Yeah. And I was like, that is the best advice I think I've gotten in med school because Mm -hmm. we're so um, on this path to Mm -hmm. checking the boxes, to getting to residency. Yeah. But we don't look at the bigger picture of, mm-hmm. you know, I want to make this kind of impact. Right. So I think that's really important that you are finding time for that amongst all the yeah. exams and stuff we have to do. No, it's yeah. so true. And it's a very hard balance to strike yeah. because it, it's a balance between what you have to do and what you want to do. Yeah. And sometimes what you have to do will open doors that let you do what you want to do. And it's yeah. this whole thing of, of like, yeah, of navigating that fine yeah. line. And sometimes you have to do certain things to even get any doors open yeah totally (laughs) yeah we were talking about I don't know if you did the book discussion for PPS yeah we were were talking about that um on how like you build your own platform by becoming a doctor but then you have to kind of check off all these boxes to even have that platform Mm -hmm. in the first place Mm -hmm. um great book what the eyes don't see yes that's right um okay let's see so given the choice would you do your gap years again, or would you go straight into school? Oh, that, yeah, to me as a no-brainer, I would 100% do them again. Okay. Um, certainly, if you talk to me at any point in them, <laughs> there were times where I was extremely stressed, but um, they were such powerful experiences in terms of how, learning about what makes me happy, like who I want to be surrounded by, like you said, what patients do you want to work with, and also like what do I want to bring to a team, and especially looking at rotations. I think we just had our dean's hour. We talk about like all the like nitty gritties of rotations, which is like so daunting and also just anxiety provoking. Um, (laughs) But I think what I just, it made me really think about 
who I wanted to be to my other um, co-students or residents or attendings. Like when they go home, I, I want them to feel supported and I want them to feel like their team supports them and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. And so I think having the gap years really helped me focus around that. And again, like you said, like take a step back from all the check boxes of like, oh, I need to like pass this rotation or get this score on whatever and all this. Like it, it kind of helps you recenter on why you're there. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about my old patients yeah. um, or clients because I wasn't providing care. But like uh, one of my clients who I worked with for a really long time, who's just an incredible person, um, she's actually having a birthday in like two weeks. Yeah. And I remember all their birthdays because whenever you schedule things or, you know, verify insurance, you have to know like all the identifying information. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember all of them. And I really wish that I could send them something, but it's kind of outside the scope of the role that I'm in now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like whenever I'm studying or whenever things are really frustrating in school, I just I think about my patients and what they go through every day and especially now not only am I like trying to go through the challenge of med school but I'm also just and this is a whole nother like hour-long conversation but being a a student who's preparing to get major orthopedic surgery and how do you um recover while you're also you know being a med student studying for bajillion hours a day um and like I said earlier interfacing with the healthcare system can be really challenging and sometimes traumatic so being able to think about my clients and be inspired by everything that they've done and continue to do helps me move forward both as a med student and as a patient um, and yeah. yeah I just think about it every day so yeah. I'm always so grateful that's lovely I love that <laughs> um, so I guess one of the worries that people have with taking gap years or questions yeah. that I get is always like I don't know if I'll be able to transition well into med school mm-hmm. after having kind of a break. And totally. So how do you feel about that? Do you think yeah. that you were able to find that groove or did it take you a little bit of time? I think um, I totally hear that. So when I was coming back into school, I was a little nervous. It's like, man, I haven't been studying for a while. I mean, I took the MCAT. I took the new MCAT right as it came out, which was just like you know, just don't do that. Like, yeah. wait till something settles. But that is so unique. It's not like you're in school. Um, so I was really nervous about that transition. And Baylor and UT, or I guess McGovern now, both have a joint summer program. It's like a six-week immersion. Okay. So to alleviate that anxiety, I was like, oh, I'll do this. And yeah. the, was it useful? Maybe. Um, it's like the pre-entry. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it is, in in my opinion, it's really like a condensed version of McGovern's uh, part of their first year. So it's really helpful for UT students because it kind of brings them through maybe the first month or six weeks of school. Uh, but for Baylor students, it's like really not relevant, except yeah. anatomy. Okay. So that was very helpful. Um, I did, I think, like a handful of dissections over the summer. Um So, which was nice because I think anatomy freaks everyone out. Even if you're interested in surgery, like there's nothing that prepares you for that kind of learning. Um, And it's just a whole new ballgame. It's a different language. And so that was really helpful in doing that um, kind of like immersion aspect. Um, Overall, I think it actually benefits you to do gap years in terms of just having less fatigue, less academic fatigue. Yeah. 
I know that there are certainly students at Baylor who in like the first and second term were like, oh, you know, this is like what I took last spring or I took cell bio or like, this is fine. And there were, and I like definitely didn't remember my cell bio from like probably five years ago (laughs) or even like if it was last year, like not everyone remembers it. So that I think might be a small advantage if you go straight into school. But I think to me, the larger advantage of taking gap year is that you're not tired and you usually know why you're here to a kind of more refined degree and you know yourself a little bit more. Um, so when you are studying, it's to me, it's, it's not, and there are certainly days where it's a chore, but I always try and think about how much of a privilege it is to be here. Um, and when you have taken time off, you can really kind of reflect on that, I think, a little bit better. So I always recommend gap years. And I think that's kind of where, like, pre-med stuff is trending. Schools want to see more, which is crazy because you do so much to get in to begin with. But I think it helps, um, but it's certainly stressful. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, transitions are hard for everybody. Yes, oh, totally. Like, I was um, just, like, a non-science major Mm -hmm. in undergrad, and so that transition from, I took no science classes my uh, senior year, so just transitioning, it felt like, you know, I have to really get back into the groove, figure out how to study again, so, and that's going to happen for everybody. Even science majors have that struggle, it's Oh, totally. A lot of information. Yeah. So. Med school, it's, it's its own beast. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's nothing that really prepares you for it. Yeah, that's for sure. So I guess, I don't know if you know too much about this, but what other kinds of things could people do during gap years? Mm-hmm. What, are, what are people in our class? Like, what have yeah. they done? If you know anything about that. Sure. I think um, a lot of, I know a lot of people who have done scribing, which makes sense because it it's kind of what checks that box of, clinical exposure and so you can see a lot of different interactions different providers um down I actually I think I applied for a scribing job and then decided not to take it but it I think the hardest part logistically is that it's very very minimal wage (laughs) so you I think with most gap year jobs um unfortunately you're kind of in a position of sort of sometimes being exploited Mm -hmm. because you're so young and you don't have the same education, like you don't have a master's, you don't have things that will like bump up your income or your salary. And you're usually doing everything you can to prepare for an application instead of for like a career in that area. Um, So you end up kind of looking towards these roles that are more in service of getting into school than of like a living wage. So that's, that's always hard. I think that's the hardest part with gap years is finding the financial situation to how, like, how do you make it sustainable? Um, yeah. So scribing is an option. I've had someone worked at NIH. Yeah, which I think that would be that would be very if cool. You can get involved with like a national organization like mm-hmm. that and get get experience. Oh, totally. Research is a popular yeah um, a popular thing, but I feel like a lot of people. So I wanted to bring you on, or someone who's had a really yeah. you know, positive experience with gap years yeah. on, because everyone I've talked to that has taken a gap year is like, I wasted it. Oh, no. Like, yeah. Um, That's the worst feeling. Yeah. I think because it's such a long time. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a whole year. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you supposed to do with this block of time? So if mm-hmm. you're not prepared, you don't have a plan right. going into it, it's very easy to let that time just slip away from mm-hmm. you. Um, but yeah, people I've talked to, you know, kind of like half-assed their way into yeah. research and then... Did, like didn't feel passionate enough about mm-hmm. it to give it to make it mean something yeah. so if research is not for you don't do it during your gap year yeah. like find other experiences like case managing mm-hmm. or you know 
being a tech or working mm-hmm. for an organization you really believe in. So. Absolutely. I think if you are lucky enough to be financially supported in some way that gives you the freedom to pursue something you care about, that is really powerful. Yeah. Um, I think uh, something else that I also considered that could be really cool along those lines is doing work with either the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps. But I know people get worried about like, oh, I got to like commit X number of years. It's a lot of time. Like, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, gap years, I think, are a source of, it <laughs> can be a source of stress, but if you can find something that really resonates with you, they're, like, they just give back tenfold. Yeah. Yeah. Really like that. Yeah, actually, those are my questions. Yeah. So, if you have any other advice to pre-meds that are applying, yeah. pre-meds thinking about taking gap years, or just in general, mm-hmm. um, words of wisdom, things yeah. you wish people had told you. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, I think the most pragmatic thing is understand the process. So understand the implications of are you in state? Are you out of state? How does that factor into what your school is looking for? Because certain schools will primarily only take in-state students. So small things that might seem kind of like boring like that are really important. So learn the process. Understand what's part of the application. Understand kind of what it would look like for you to be a strong applicant because you don't want to apply when you're not at your best and you don't want to be in a position of like well I can always apply again like don't do that like go in and be like this is when I'm ready and I'm gonna just like knock it out of the park as much as I can um so that's the pragmatic side and I think there's also one of the most important things that I see is do a lot of self-reflection, make sure it's something that you want to do. And that in and of itself is a really stressful thing. Like, how am I supposed to know that I want to do something that I've never done before? So put yourself in in a position to experience different aspects of medicine and try and understand really why you're here, what you hope to accomplish and why you're getting the degree, because there's so many cool things you can do without an MD. Um, So just reflect on what matters to you and like, how you see this degree impacting your ability to pursue goals that you have for yourself. And there's never a bad idea. Like anything that you want to do is awesome and you should go do it if you can. Yeah, completely. I love that advice. Okay. So with that, we're going to wrap up, but thank you so much to Andy for being here today. Yeah, totally. It was great. Yay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And that is a wrap on that episode. Thank you so much to Andy for coming down and helping me record this episode. And like she said about gap years, you know, it's always about having a plan and kind of planning out your gap year well in advance and knowing what you want to do with all the time that you're going to have. And like I said in the episode, I've, you know, had, I haven't had a gap year personal experience, but everyone I've talked to just did not really have a very productive one. And that makes me sad. So definitely, you know, plan it out, do something productive or do something you've really wanted to do and you won't get the chance to do in med school. And yeah, thank you so much to Andy. It was such a fun episode to film. Again, I'm so glad that I get to have these cool little experiences with my classmates and get to know them better. And I hope you guys are liking episodes like this. And let me know what you want to hear more of. Always feel free to DM me on my Instagram at Cybear and or on Facebook or wherever you can find me. Feel free to DM me. I pretty much respond to every single person and yeah have a great week guys and thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are